is Chelsea Higgs Wise. And I decided to start a show about being the biracial girl who was living her life, being half and half, never picking a side until one day the world informed me, girl, you're black. I'm from the listening to race capital we've got a special message to start us out from sylvia from the intersectional wonder woman's art show wonder women and truth sayers unite intersectional wonder women art show volume two truth sayer at studio 23 benefiting safe harbor is on may 23rd from 6 30 to 8 p.m we got artwork from all over and 20 percent of each art sale goes to safe harbor and supports survivors of domestic abuse sexual violence and human trafficking tickets are on sale now at wonderwomenartshow.com bonus your ticket is a 100 donation to safe harbor wonder women and truth sayers come support buy art and follow us on facebook Facebook and Instagram at Wonder Women Art Show. Next up, we have a new segment of the show that touches on what's going on in the news. So this new thing that we're going to do is review what we're following. What are the highlights, the high lows, what's on our timeline, and kind of see what's on the radar. All right, Kat, I've come with a list. Okay. Are you prepared? I'm ready. Okay. So my first one is definitely a highlight of Stacey Abrams has decided that she is not going in for the Senate bid, which means still open to that 2020. Yes. You know, everyone's like, Chels, who are you looking at? What's your favorite presidential candidate out of the 100? Come right? on. Come. I say Stacey Abrams and yep. they look at me crazy, but I will not give up. I will not. I will say shout out to Elizabeth Warren, though. Her yeah. policies are dope. Yeah, but it's Stacey Abrams. <laughs> yeah, my girl. <laughs> Come on, <girl>. bye, <laughs> bye. So yeah, that's my first like super excited thing I'm following. So, so in a Houston suburb, an assistant principal at Barry Miller Junior High School in Pearland used a black permanent marker to color in the designs on a black student's head. I did see this. This is one of those ones that I just kept scrolling because I was like, I will not today. No, Jesus, I will not today. <sighs> the student's the mother, Angela Washington, posted about this on Facebook. Ah! It was widely circulated by Black Lives Matter Houston. And then the Parallel ISD issued a public response. Oh, God. Saying the administrator had been placed on leave, mm -hmm. but the haircut was in violation of the dress code, which reads, and I quote, hair must be neat, clean, and well-groomed. Extreme hairstyles, such as carvings, mohawks, spikes, etc., are not allowed. Carvings? Carvings. Carvings. Now, I'm not sure who defined extremes, <laughs> but be willing to venture a guess. Yo, the criminalizing of our hair is so real. That reminds me of something that's not on my list was the legislation that's going on in California to say that dreadlocks, oh. yeah, you can't be discriminated on, uh, on your hair for jobs. After the student, was he on the football team and uh, he was made to cut his dreads? So that was a story, yeah, but that there's been some legislation going on. There is actually legislation happening in California. But yeah, that was just another example of ridiculousness, just like this young man's permanent marker, like his head being this, that's outrageous. That's outrageous. Yeah. So not surprised. Way to go, Texas. My next one is just an update on uh, Uncle Joe Biden and Anita Hill's response. <laughs> oh 
I sure did. Uncle Joe. You know, Uncle Joe is back again in the news with his run for 2020. Okay, we knew that was coming. But I really appreciate it. Anita Hill came back and said, look, in the last month, I've talked to Joe again, and it's still not enough. Right. He's still not able to take accountability. He was like, I was just there. I'm sorry you had a bad time, you know, and... Go back and read this article about what she's saying and the very interesting strategic words that are happening around this Anita Hill case. So that's something else I'm watching with it. But let's not forget, y'all. Let's not forget black women. I'm going to take a more solemn note here. Okay. I'm going to highlight Nigel Shelby. All right. He was a 15-year-old black gay child who died by suicide in April after being bullied. Mm. As Brittany Packnett put it, he was literally bullied to death. And I just want to drop you all with the note that according to the Center for Social Equity, 74% of LGBTQ youth report feeling unsafe in their school. I'm going to also go, I'm going to go back to back because you had something with the, the marker comment made me also think of some other racism that happened right here in Virginia was the idea of monuments and Confederate war memorials being protected. Right. And as, uh, as, as war monuments. Yes. So therefore, they are untouchable. Mm. <laughs> yeah. State legislation, state legislators, y'all got to, y'all need to jump one on that one. So here's a fun one. Mm-hmm. All right, William and Mary is building a memorial to people who were enslaved there. This week they announced that they had decided a winner for their design contest that they opened after students have been asking for many years for this memorial. So, okay, okay. Guess who won the design contest? Cat, it better not be a white person. Bingo. God, no. No. Why? People don't understand the intentionality behind these commemorative pieces right cut the designer matters oh hey he said that stop it he he studied slavery (laughs) and he took it very seriously (laughs) so seriously that he felt entitled enough to apply for this contest he said he said something in the washington post along the lines i knew i had to apply (gasps) i I bet you did the call came and he (laughs) answered and they picked him. Oh, my gosh, y'all. Like, this is why we can't get ahead. Right here. Here in good old Virginia. Speaking of other Virginia colleges, uh, University of Virginia, the basketball team declined Trump's invitation. Yes. That was a bold move from UVA team. Appreciate that. Just continuing the legacy of these sports teams not going there. I will say our teacher of the year, Ronnie, went, and I am all for that. You go take your black self and disrupt that whole White House with your awards. Celebrate. Appreciate that one. I really wanted to also bring to light Adele McClure and her speaking out. She is a former staffer of Justin Fairfax that spoke out. And I know we've been following this for a while. So I really wanted to take a moment to read some of her words. This past February, when Virginia was in turmoil, I suppressed my feelings and I rolled off my past experience with sexual assault as a personal bias 
the staffer said. At the time, I was serving the Commonwealth of Virginia as a lieutenant governor's policy director. After I became aware of the first accusation of sexual assault against the lieutenant governor, I convinced myself that my feelings didn't matter. I had to protect my boss, my friend, his feelings, and his name at all costs. I believed him. But the more I heard from these women's stories and the more I read the public and private reactions and responses from that office, the less and less I could stand by and support and compromise on those responses. I first began to have my doubts about the side I was standing on when I first heard from Dr. Vanessa Tyson. Her story began to sound too familiar to me and I became ill at the attempt to discredit her, to attack her, to threaten her with defamation suits and criminal prosecution. But for some time, I still believe that I was standing on the right side of my friend. That was super brave. She goes on, please read the entire transcript at bluevirginia.us and support this young woman, this young black woman that's speaking out for other women and the truth here in Virginia. Bravo. My last one is something in the water, y'all. Like this music festival that happened here in Virginia means the world to this state means the world to musicians, creatives, black entrepreneurs, the way that Pharrell was able to put this community festival together for this Commonwealth will be life changing for all of us. And I'm just so excited to see the intentionality to hear about the conversations he had with the police, the the businesses that were brought in the vendors, the fun, the joy, I just Oh my gosh, I'm my heart is just so full for that type of space making that was able to happen for 757 and for Virginia. It's May 8th, which means we are six days out from the one year anniversary of the murder of Marcus David Peters. This was a really impactful moment for me last year. What brought me to this work was seeing black bodies being shot in the streets by the police. I'm a mental health worker, and to see that this young man lost his life last year kept me up for the last 365 days. So we've invited the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project in to give us an update on how we as a community can continue to hold the police accountable, to get the information, to ask the right questions, and to see exactly how transparent are our structures. Right. And RTAP is working to make policing data public and data that should be public but that isn't data about police interventions. And without this kind of documentation, this hard data that they're bringing, it's really hard to change the systems and structures that police continue to imprison and incarcerate black bodies. Right. And justify shooting and killing black bodies, which is what happened last year on the side of I-95, where Marcus David Peters was suffering from a mental health crisis, was naked and was justifiably shot dead because a police officer feared for his life. Without this type of data and these conversations, we'll never be able to change the way our structures interact with our communities. So we're just going to keep having this conversation, keep pushing the structures, and see where we can push our community. All right, so we're going to just open it up. My name is Adio Logan Kede. I am the legal director for the Civil Rights and Racial Justice Program at the Legal Aid Justice Center. Legal Aid Justice Center is a member of RTAP, the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project. The project is about transparency and accountability for the Richmond Police Department to the extent that the Civil Rights and Racial Justice Program is vested, invested in this work. It is a function of knowing that 
police accountability and and fair treatment of communities, particularly communities of color, by the police department is a longstanding civil rights issue. And LAJC and the Civil Rights and Racial Justice Program came to the work with that understanding and looked to the community and looked to community members who themselves were engaged and organizing around this issue to say, how can we help? How can we support your work as legal professionals working in a legal organization to really give that extra boost to the community members who had their own voice and the legal part being technical assistance that we could provide to uplift their campaign around police accountability in Richmond. Nice. Okay, great. Who's next? I'm Liz Costin. I am a faculty member in the Department of Sociology at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a member of RTAP. And so my own research is about policing and particularly how it intersects with the lives of LGBTQ plus identified people. And so one of the things that I've really been doing with the coalition work, I've been doing a lot of the data analysis work for the coalition because as part of this police accountability campaign, politicians were saying we need more than just stories of community members. And so I've been really trying to do the data analyses that really just paint a larger picture of of what's going on in communities of color in Richmond. And my own personal interest in this work is Number one, addressing inequalities, period, across the board. But LGBTQ people usually aren't captured in any of the data on policing, even though we know that they're also significantly impacted by negative experiences with police. So, you know, hopefully by addressing the issues of racial inequality, we'll be actually helping all communities being policed more fairly and more equitably. Great. So a legal lens, a data analysis lens. What else? And I'm going to be another legal lens. I'm um, sorry to not bring a different tool, but my name is Kim Rolla, and I'm an attorney also with the Civil Rights and Racial Justice Program mm -hmm. at Legal Aid Justice Center. And Adiola already told you a little bit about our program. And I'll tell you a little bit about uh, a little more about the origin of RTAP, the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project. When our programs, the Civil Rights and Racial Justice Program at LAJC was very young, it was in our first half year of existence, we had a coworker who brought us to the table with Southerners on New Ground, which okay. is a queer liberation organization. They work with folks of color and working class folks in the South who are LGBTQ. Right. And they've got a great bail Black Mamas Out action going on right now that you can follow. Yes. Shout out. You can donate to get mamas free for Mother's Day. Yep. So and you're, you're saying that when you all started out, what year was this? This was in 2017. Is that right, Adiola? Yeah. In the fall of 2017, independently, a chapter in Southside in Blackwell of New Virginia Majority had done door knocking. They'd knocked on 700 doors to ask people ident to identify the top issue in their community. What would they want to organize around? And policing wow. was the top issue. At the same time, um, as Dr. Costin had said, Liz had said, Song, their particularly trans and gender nonconforming members had had multiple experiences with officers in the Richmond area where they were treated disrespectfully in ways that made them feel unsafe. And they had both reached independently a demand for greater police accountability. And we're thinking through methods of civilian oversight and other ways that we could have more community control and accountability 
from our police department. Wow. So both those groups had reached out independently, and we came together, as Adiola mentioned, to provide legal support for those or, those organizing efforts. And initially, what that looked like, because community members had were getting together, they were holding town halls and really bearing witness to their offering testimony to their experience of policing in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And they had a lot of pushback where the response from city officials, both the police department, city councilors, was that these are anecdotes. Mm. Um, they're individual stories. They may be, you know, whether they may be from a long time ago or that may have been a bad apple. Did you file a complaint? Did you file a civilian complaint? Wow. If you did, it would have been addressed. And they, it was very dismissive. And the community members came to us and said, is there any support you can provide to push back on this? And we ended up filing a series of what are called Freedom of Information Act requests. So public records requests to say, we want the data that the Richmond Police Department keeps on itself, on its officer's behavior, to say, basically to, to say, we believe that the community members are truth tellers mm. and they're carrying their own stories and that those should be listened to in and of themselves. But can we also provide some scaffolding in which to contextualize these stories, to say that's not one person who experienced that, that's one of 817. Right. I just made that number up, but <laughs> let's say... <laughs> Okay, so and I saw in the news recently too that the foyers they're saying that will be released without fees, right? So recently, is that something that is coming out? No. So initially, when we filed the Freedom of Information Act request, they were denied. Okay. Through a series of meetings that we ended up having with the former chief of police, Chief Durham, and Mayor Stoney, the Richmond Police Department did agree to produce the data that we were requesting when they when they sent us the document saying, here's the data we can produce, they also said, here's the $4,500 price tag for that data, essentially arguing that it was going to take them so many additional hours of labor to produce the data sets that would be above and beyond what they would normally be doing. Mm -hmm. And so um, we actually, RTAP had a petition to release the data and waive the fees. And we got, in the end, I think over 400 people signed on to that. And Mayor Stoney did end up waiving the fees for the data. At this point, we've received all of the data from those requests. I saw a press release, I think, from RTAP, and it was saying that Mayor Stoney wouldn't have fees anymore. So is that is that accurate that in, in response to your efforts, he has said going forward, there won't be fees for FOIAs regarding police data? No, no. He agreed to waive the fees that were calculated for this specific data request. And I think another thing that's important is that the Richmond Police Department has, we've had a series of exchanges in them about transparency, one of which was focused on officer use of force and the results of civilian complaints against officers. Mm-hmm. That was also a lengthy battle over, I think it was over six months. And eventually RPD agreed every month to publicly post on their website information on officer use of force against civilians and the results of civilian complaints that are filed against officers. That's ongoing. It's posted to their website every month. And Dr. Costing can speak a little bit about maybe at some point the potential limitations to that data, some flaws that may be in that data, but it is ongoing. Mm-hmm. What I think it's important for people to know about this second set of data, it's really important data that the community said was its priority. It's data on um, what people will call stop and frisk or what the police department will call field interviews or Ah. pedestrian contacts and also traffic stops. And I think it's important to know, though, that they agreed to release about 18 months of data to us, but it's a one-time data release. It's a pool of data that is historical that we fought with them to release without charging thousands of dollars to the public to see this information. But there's been no commitment to produce that on an ongoing basis. And there's been no commitment from the mayor that any future requests 
will be responded to, let alone responded to without charge. And I think Dr. Kossin will speak more to the flaws with the data capture practices of RPD and data reporting practices. But something for people who might be listening in to take away is that when it came to certain pieces of information, it was it's always been pulling teeth with RPD to get them to release the data. But when it came to the stop and frisk numbers, that was a particular fight where they dug their heels in for a while. That's the fight to which they slapped the huge fee bill. That's the fight that it took the pressure on Mayor Stoney to get RPD to switch gears. It took some time to get them to agree to release the use of force data and the civilian complaint data. But as Dr. Costin will tell you, that data, while probative of some issues, is not particularly robust and not particularly well fleshed out. That's not to say that the data on stop and frisk is more robust or more or better fleshed out, but that piece of information how they are policing communities in Richmond and what the demographics look like of their stops, of their questions, of their searches was an area where RPD was particularly intractable and unwilling to move forward without significant escalation of pressure on them in the form of pressure from Mayor Stoney and increased sort of like community awareness through the petition that Dr. Kossin mentioned. Okay, yeah. And I I know that talking about the monthly reporting of use of force, my first exposure to that was at a community meeting in response to the shooting of Marcus David Peters and how that particular use of force wasn't reported in a particular month, but was in that June, but not in the actual month that it happened. And that was just a first introduction to me and I know to a lot of people of wow, what's what's happening with the re- reporting of this data is really problematic. So yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more, Liz, about what this data tells us. Yeah. So in regard to the market, Marcus David Peters incident, what happened there was the Richmond Police Department was posting these monthly use of force reports to their website, but they weren't including any uses of firearms. So if a firearm had been used against a citizen, that didn't appear at all in the 2017 data. And this was actually what was a red flag to me is because usually when cities, particularly the size of Richmond, if there are no officers that discharge their weapons, It's a big deal. It makes news. And so when I was looking through the codes and I realized no firearms appeared, I knew something had to be wrong. So I went back. I started looking through media reports. There were people who were killed where there was no firearm use of force reported. And so in that sense, there was omitted data. from this data set. But the other problem with this data across the board is that so much of it is discretionary. When you look at the use of force reports, those are reported, self-reported by officers when they use force that is above and beyond what is, quote, departmentally approved. So an officer can take someone to the ground, put them in a joint lock, physically restrain them, but they don't have to report that because it's not beyond what's departmentally approved. Wow. And so when you're looking at that use of force data, what you're really talking about is only escalated instances of force. And so that's really problematic. We saw racial disparities in that data. Also, when we look at the field interview reports, that's largely discretionary data. That those are produced when an officer says, I see something that's noteworthy. Mm -hmm. Well, What's noteworthy is completely up to an officer's discretion. And so 
They're not required to produce these for every single person they stop. And so when we see racial disparities in this kind of discretionary reporting, what it's really telling us about is officers' perceptions. Mm. Officers are perceiving Black people as being more suspicious than they're perceiving white people to be. Right. And we know that from a lot of the data that was put out about a month ago or so, just looking at the police interventions in the state, in the city. And just a couple of them, 98% of police reports for curfew violation were black people, 90% of traffic stops for warrant violations were black people, 87% of police reports for driving without a valid license were black people. So these disparities and the bias lens is real here and it's showing up in the data. It's not just um, one-offs from community stories. And just a side note, 48% of Richmond is black. Right. Only 48% of us are black. And one of the things that I think it's really important for listeners to be aware of about these field interview reports is that they're not necessarily indicative of criminal activity. Mm. Right. I mean, by definition, I think the easiest example to look at is some of the individuals who were allegedly stopped or had there was suspicion that they may have been violating a curfew were over were 18 or over. So by definition, they cannot violate a curfew ordinance. Right. Right. It's an entry point to the just like the criminal justice system, because as soon as they are approaching and that intervention happens, then the likelihood of other charges and other interventions and interactions with the police that increases right there. It's just. The stop and frisk versus the field interview is a very good way of changing the narrative and misleading people to know what's actually happening there. Yeah. And that was a that was part of our fight with RPD in some of the Freedom of Information Act requests that were made. Mm -hmm. We referenced the data as stop and frisk numbers and Mm -hmm. RPD pushed back aggressively against the use of that terminology. (laughs) disclaiming that the Richmond Police Department engages in stop and frisk. First of all, stop and frisk is essentially a a, a legal term. Right. It is stop and frisk is in and of itself legal. Where we have what has happened in New York, New York's particular, the NYPD's particular brand of stop and frisk was declared unconstitutional. But the practice of stopping an individual based on what the legal standard is, reasonable, articulable suspicion, and then frisking them if the officer reasonably believes the person to be armed That is still legal all across the United States. So what the officer believes, what the officer perceives, it's all very discretionary on the officer. And what is happening, obviously, is there's and the standard is being alighted and you have post hoc justification where there is an actual reasonable articulable suspicion and the officer doesn't actually have the level of information necessary to stop someone or search them and that's what was happening in New York what was happening instead was proxies such as race neighborhood other things were being used mm-hmm. and that's what officers were using to stop individuals um, and we know that's happening here in Richmond as well but mm-hmm. police departments like RPD are trying to get out of the nasty shadow that NYPD stop and frisk program cast on stop and frisk practices to try and rebrand what they do mm-hmm. and say they don't engage in stop and frisk. And we know that that is patently inaccurate. And one one other thing, if I can add about the Please. field interview reports, is that one of the ways that 
RPD attempted to distance itself from this concept of stop and frisk is to say, not all of these are stops. They wouldn't even let us call them pedestrian stops. They're pedestrian contacts because RPD includes what they call consensual encounters oh in my the gosh. same category. And for example, one of the hypotheticals they used repeatedly was if an officer stops and plays basketball with someone, they may decide to fill out a field interview report with basic information about what they learned from the conversation with that civilian. I I wonder if that's actually ever happened. Like, is any of these reports coming from a basketball game? And I think another... I mean, to me, it actually begs the question, why are you not capturing stops in a database where we know what are stops, right? You know, even leaving aside the like question of whether an an interaction with an officer is consensual Mm -hmm. in the colloquial sense of the word consensual. But if we don't know what stops are, Mm -hmm. and and then of course that means that that suspicion that Adiola was just articulating, no pun intended, um, that's not recorded anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Since this is just a, you know, collection of these reports on encounters that may or may not have been consensual, there's nowhere the officer is even forced to make a post-hoc rationalization. They don't have to write that down. We don't have any information where the officer says, the reason that I stopped this person then had a suspicion that they may have been trespassing was X. Right. We don't have that. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're putting all of these things into one bucket that I think allows them to make this kind of disingenuous claim where they're like, well, these aren't all, these aren't profiling. These could be, you know, consensual contact, which again, that level of authority that police officers have in the uniform coming up telling me that, well, it was consensual as if we have an opportunity, like a a real option to say, no, I don't want to engage with you. And then RPD's data systems are, they say antiquated. We say, you know, potentially like this is the way they were designed. The system will not keep and track and allow us to know who from the field interview report stage was then arrested and what information there is to sh- to match up the field interview report card with arrest data. And what we really wanted was whether searches were performed as a result of these field interviews or these pedestrian encounters. Mm-hmm. And their response was, well, that isn't it. That would be recorded in just an open text box. They would put in there any notes that they were thinking, but also if they had searched someone and if there was evidence turned up or not. But because it's all in these text boxes, they said that they couldn't actually distill that information and say definitively whether a search had occurred or not. So you all are having to completely uncover what is not being recorded, what's not being done, and what we just do not know about our policing in Richmond. What do you all focus on right now? Like, what are your next steps that you are really working on to talk about and to get out for the people? So in our interaction with Mayor Stoney, one of the commitments that we were able to get from him, in addition to waiving this $4,500 in fees to provide the pedestrian contact and traffic stop data, was that he would engage the public in a discussion around RPD's records management system. So their their data capture and reporting system is called their records management system, their RMS. And they had put out a request, what's called a request for proposals, an RFP, to say, we want to redo this system. You know, the mm-hmm. thing that Adiola just said, it's antiquated. We can't. Everything's in different databases. We want to redo it. 
And we were in the middle of this epic years-long battle with RPD over data and said, you have to talk to the community about really what data they, in the RFP actually included an ask for a public-facing portal. So a portal that okay. the community could go into and pull down certain information about policing. Yes. And we said, you, you've got to have a space for the community to come tell you what needs to be in that portal, right. what RPD need, officers need to be capturing and what we need to be able to access. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of that, that Dr. Costin maybe will speak a little bit more on is we also want to we want to tell you what kind of s police surveillance and data sharing we don't want um, <laughs> and we don't want you giving information to with other law enforcement agencies you know for example to ICE or yeah. you know we want to be able to have a space to tell you that and Mayor Stoney committed to holding a session for public engagement around the new records management system. Well, we he also committed to having a community meeting after Marcus David Peters' death around policing and mental health. But it is almost a year later next week, and we have not had that meeting. But sounds good. Yeah, and we have not had the Mayor Stoney did not host a meeting on the records management system. And we know that the RPD signed a contract with a company huh. called Global Soma huh. to provide that service. When and was this? The contract was signed in late January. I believe okay. Global Soma put out a press release in early February. And we wrote a letter to say, we, you know, we saw that this contract has been signed and we would like to know when the public engagement will be. And we did not receive a response. Mm -hmm. So we decided to host our own forum. And we did that last month and we listened to community members and they had a lot to say okay. about what data they want and what kind of surveillance they do not. We gave that information to Mayor Stoney in a letter again and uh -huh. said we there were some questions about RPD's plans and the city's plans for this records management system and for policing that we cannot answer. And we would like dates from you and interim chief Smith of when you are available to meet with the community to discuss these priorities and answer their questions. And we asked for a response by May 1st, which is today, the day we were recording this. And as of 446, we did not have a response. And the Soma Global announcement on their website of the contract between RPD and their company specifically says that the platform will allow for deployment across multiple jurisdictions and features spanning use across the Richmond City Sheriff's Office and the Virginia Commonwealth University. Oh. So this is a platform that extends to multiple agencies and the university, right, mm -hmm. in the city of Richmond. And the city has not done anything to engage the community around this platform, how it will be developed, its use, and other issues that the community said they wanted to provide input on right. and that the mayor promised he would accept their input on. And I think it's important to also mention that Soma Global prides themselves on being one of the leaders in predictive technologies for policing. And so essentially, based on crime data, which yeah. we know is already problematic because they base it on a lot of discretionary factors. Right. And so those kind of inputs go into these data systems, and then they use that to predict whether crime will occur in certain areas. And proactively deploy police to those areas ah! to actually increase surveillance in those communities. And so residents were really concerned about this. Yeah. They don't want predictive policing taking place in Richmond. How relevant is all of this conversation to hiring of the new police chief? And has there been any conversation about who that person is or what are you all hearing from from your platforms about the new chief and data? Well, I can say that um, Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project was originally invited to participate in interview panel 
for the police chief. We had had we had members at each of the town halls that were hosted, and I know that you were at at least one. Yep, I was at two, but yeah, two of them. Uh-huh. Um, and for your listeners that were not there, I will say that these were hour, at least an hour long each mm-hmm. session. There were four of them where community members, despite fairly patronizing facilitation, um, were able to offer very detailed feedback on what they wanted in a police chief. You know, anti-racist, trauma-informed, accountable, unbiased. You know, we we actually went through and made a list of everything that someone said. And we were told that that would be put into the job qualifications, specifically the preferred qualifications. And what we actually ended up with, I think, was two sentences of preferred qualifications that the only overlap we actually made a Venn diagram was a master's degree, listening and community were the only aspects that were included in both. So we we wanted to be able to be on this hiring panel to to push and push for what we and carry what we've heard from the community into these spaces. But when we asked for the ability to be to respect the confidentiality of applicants, not share anyone's personally identifying information, but to be able to to talk with the public about this, to talk with the media about what kind of priorities were shown, what was the process like, how were the community's priorities carried into this interview space? We were told no, and our our invitation was retracted. Oh, you're no longer invited. We to are the no party. longer invited. So there's a lot of conversations that I just want to bring up around what type of access the police have. They're the ring technology, uh, the doorbell that has the video camera. Our Richmond Police Department are now like big cheerleaders marketers for them. Apparently they're going around community meetings, giving raffle tickets and giving them out for free and telling people to download an app, put their code in and they get some type of donation for people now using the ring that records a certain distance from your home and it's kind of like what's a neighbor next door next door right and i have it on my phone and i just i will be really honest with you especially watching some of the community meetings and police talking about this it just seems like more access to the community more ways to criminalize who is suspicious more reasons to stop people as well as just to watch certain houses in certain neighborhoods i any idea or conversations about like what this types of access means to people that are looking for more transparency with the police? So I think one of the big problems here is much like the implementation of the new records management system, Mm. the Richmond Police Department hasn't given us much information about how they plan to use this. Right. And so in their press release, it said that police would be able to request footage. But on what basis? Right. What, what type of suspicion do the police have to have to request that? And how are they going to articulate that to the people they're requesting it from? Right. So and if, do we even know that they'll requesting that? Like they'll request it directly from the citizen? So apparently they'll be able to send a push notification through the app to okay. say, can we have access to your doorbell camera footage? But how are we to know why they want it Mm -hmm. or if that's reasonable? Mm -hmm. And as a citizen who downloaded this app, do you feel good about telling the police, no, you can't access my footage? Right. So as part of this, as part of this partnership, for everyone who signs up, for every so many signups they get, Ring is actually sending doorbell cams to RPD to give out as they see fit. So it's really problematic to me that the police can hand you a camera to put on your house right. and then say, and now I'm going to request the footage from you. Because if they've given you the camera, how are you not supposed to feel obligated? Right. Along with the authority that they hold in the community anyway. Right. Right. So as we approach the anniversary of Marcus David Peters, I want to just remind everybody that we can all have a role in this conversation. And that doesn't necessarily mean that 
we are analyzing the data or that we're marching down the street, but understanding that as citizens and as Richmonders, we all carry some type of privilege. So up next, I want to invite you all to participate in... What's your privilege? What's your privilege is a portion of our show where we invite our guests to talk about what their privilege is walking in this world and how they use it to disrupt the rooms that have created white supremacy and the idea that black and brown people are not valued. Who wants to go first to talk about what's their privilege? I'll go. So I think that I have privilege in a few ways, but I'm, I'm going to talk about two of them primarily. So the fact that I'm white and also the fact that I'm highly educated. I have a PhD. It means that I can walk into a room and people listen to things that I say. Because I'm white, that also helps. And so I teach at VCU. And one of the things I do in all my classrooms is I make sure to open dialogues about inequality, about race and racism, about the marginalization of LGBTQ people, about class inequality, about how all of these things impact people's lives. Can I ask, how is RTAP funded? RTAP is not funded. <laughs> so you are literally using your skill as a, as a volunteer. Yes. In this entire work. Yes. I don't, I don't get paid for it. And I also, it's not part of my job at VCU either. <laughs> so I am doing this of my own free will. Mm -hmm. um, because it matters. And I think that we should be using our skills and our privileges to make the world around us a better place. And if there aren't people pointing out those inequalities, they'll just continue to exist. Who's next? I'll go. I mean, my privilege, I think when I think about it, I think relative to my own family, yeah. my own, like I'm a black woman. I grew up in a low income neighborhood in New York City. I went to public schools through going to college. And while I am a lawyer and highly educated, I think it's not just the education piece for me that is my privilege, it's the access that my education gives me to spaces, um, particularly as a lawyer. Lawyers sit in so many seats of power. So many of our presidents have been lawyers. Our lawmakers, many of them are lawyers. And to the extent that, you know, I think the numbers are 6% of the legal profession are black people. I sit in a rarefied position to be amongst that group. And I think of what I do to dismantle white supremacy, I think of it as twofold. One, it's opening the door for more people like me and with my background to come into the profession mm -hmm. and have access to those spaces that I have. But it's also projecting outward to the people who are often in those spaces who've never met anyone like me, who, you know, the 6% of us that exist, we get spread a little thin. I would say across the and whole so, country. Right. I, I will say I, I started practicing in New York. Mm -hmm. It is, it's interesting to see the differences being a black woman, being a black attorney in Virginia versus being a black attorney in New York. There's white supremacy in all places. Mm -hmm. New York City is no different. Mm -hmm. um, there, it looked like me stepping up to counsel's table on my own case where I was representing a client and having a judge ask me, where's your lawyer? Mm. In Virginia, it looks like me being literally the only brown face in a courtroom except for the person who's being charged with a crime. Yeah. So 
It's it's a space where I never hesitate to remind the powers that be around me about sort of the fact that I am a rarity is a problem. Right. It's a problem for the profession. I hold my colleagues to account for that. And I look to them to say, what are you doing about that issue? It's not just my my own issue to hold the door open. Mm-hmm. You need to figure out how to make the space more accommodating and more inclusive. I mean, the work of diversity and equity isn't just up to the brown and black people. Yeah, it, because if it was, right, how far could we get? There's six percent of us, right? right. We're six percent of the population. We right. need we we need a little effort here from some other folks. A little help, an ally here too. You've got two sitting next to you, which are kind of great. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you for a strong black woman, and thank you for being here with your six percent and the formal capital confederacy. Yeah. Man, Kim. So I. I have a lot of privileges. I think I'll, so I'm a white person. I'm a white gender nonconforming person, masculine of center. So I move through the world as a highly educated masculine white person, Mm -hmm. um, which I think as Dr. Kossin mentioned, that people tend to be willing to accept that I have a certain level of expertise and are able to speak on things with a certain level of authority. And throughout my career as an attorney, I've been repeatedly struck by, I was a housing attorney for many years, and we would go to housing authority board meetings actually in Charlottesville. And the community members I organized with and that were my clients would stand up and give public comment and say something over and over and over again through their direct lived experience. And I would come up at some point in the campaign, they would have asked me to come up and put a legal gloss on it. And then everyone would nod as if there was some kind of great truth being told that had already been told, they just refused to listen. And I think one of the, so I'll say two ways that I try as as primarily as a white person to dismantle structural racism is that I remind myself consistently that I am not an expert and that to the extent I'm treated as one, my goal should be to provide other people a platform and to amplify those people's voice and pass the mic whenever possible. Mm-hmm. And I think, I hope RTAP has, can continue to do a job of trying to emphasize that we are not the ones that are revealing the truth of the Richmond Police Department. That has already happened for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people have done that work. And it's a testimony to really the legacies of racism in this city that people haven't listened. And so I, I think that it's, imp- I hope that we can continue to say that we're not, we're not generating expertise here. Like the community members that called us to the table, they're the ones who have that expertise. And And the second way I hope that I can push back on white supremacy and encourage other folks to is that it's important to know our own privileges, but I think it's important also to recognize that these are structures and systems that we have to organize to fight against. Mm. We have to dismantle the structures. There's nothing I can do. I can't make an ethical decision as a white person of where to live in the city of Richmond as an individual choice because the city is rapidly gentrifying and pushing people out of the city and displacing them. And nothing I decide as an individual person will stop that. It doesn't mean that I should absolve myself of thinking about that, but it means that I need to be committed to working together with a broad, multiracial, multi class group that is in solidarity is going to fight the system that tells some people that they're not valuable enough to stay in the communities that they built. So I think we it's all of us, it's important that we not just think about how can I, how can I as an individual feel ethical and pat myself on the back every day, but like what are we doing to actually build power to tear these systems down? So a privilege that I have is one that has come across through access as well as my network and being able to have access to people, information, and resources that I can then share and educate myself to speak more articulately about these issues and share this advocacy piece. And information is really a privilege to have that and to 
not to have the burden that you all have have gone through, right? Like you all have done a lot of the work so that we can have this information. And to be able to call, send a text, and you all be so open and willing to come on a platform, I believe that's a privilege of mine. And it's important to share that out and to get this voice to as many people as possible. So just the, the platform and the network, I believe is a privilege of mine. And I do that to pass it on. Before we wrap up, I really want to ask you all, and this can be from your personal lens too, about how this information, you would love to see this information affect or empower people during the upcoming elections in the city. I think that people need to vote for people who are going to support their interests. And if you want to see police reform, then go to town halls, go to public forums, talk to candidates about police reform, talk to them about whether they care about it, what they'll support, get them to make public commitments about what they'll do moving forward. I think that being engaged with the issues that are of concern to you and ensuring that our public officials will actually be accountable is really important. I would say I hope it helps people prioritize because obviously we all have a lot of things that are important to us. And the goal of this information is to sort of like open the black box, pull back the curtain on practices of the Richmond Police Department that are generally kept, you know, secret, Mm -hmm. not secret from the people who are being (laughs) over-policed, but secret in the sense that many folks will feel like it's an individual thing. I'm being policed this way. Maybe it's me. Maybe, you know, there's something I did. Maybe there's something I can do. But to Kim's point earlier, these are about systems and it's about institutions and culture. And so I hope people with this information can start to see the extent Mm -hmm. of the problem and really begin to prioritize issues like policing. Mm -hmm. We know that policing is inextricably linked to issues of poverty and housing and public health. And so where those things are important to people we know, and they vote on those issues, being able to see the larger connections and how policing impacts all of those and help them prioritize this as an issue that they want a candidate to be responsive to. I will definitely echo both what Dr. Kostin and Adiola said about making this a priority issue. I think that there's policing is not one of the top issues that's discussed in uh, by by local candidates. And I will I guess I'll make one more pitch as a white person to say that like for when we mapped the traffic stop data we um, it didn't have racial demographics for the person stopped for all of that information, but Liz was able to use census block data and map hotspots of where people were stopped. And they they mapped into majority people of color neighborhoods and where those neighborhoods abutted majority white neighborhoods. <laughs> and I want white folks to know that policing is part of how gentrification happens in cities. Yep. And that if as white people living in this city, this is our issue to speak out on right. and to be present for. And we need to make it an issue. If it's not an issue that candidates are talking about, and if they're going to present themselves as progressive candidates, then we need to hold them to task for that and get firm commitments, as Dr. Costin was saying. They need to take positions on this Mm -hmm. because it is a critical racial and economic justice issue. That's why Adiola and I work for an anti-poverty organization and we work on policing. Right. That exactly. It makes sense. And there was no conversation about policing in this past budget. There was a lot of noise about schools, leaves, transit, which is important. But policing and that budget was in there as well. So questioning what that budget was for, why they need this budget, none of these conversations conversations was a priority for a lot of people. Uh, So I 
agree with all of you all that this needs to be a conversation in these upcoming 2020 elections, remembering that we have a Commonwealth attorney election as well that's coming up, and that this information can really be power on what we want to see from our elected officials and what we can ask. Even if you don't know everything, you can take a piece of this information and just start asking questions to see their responses and to see how that really applies to you. I just want to thank you all for being here again and thank you all for the work with everything that got going on. How can people follow the work that you guys have? You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is RichmondVATAP, RichmondVATAP. Great, great. And I just want to really say thank you again for all that you're doing and continue to post because one of these things that is I think is really important is the process that you all are going through. The process of gaining the information, the process of organizing, the process of the meetings. This is also a model of how people can organize in the city when there really is no data or a foundation for doing it. So thank you for modeling that work for Richmond. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm grateful for the work that RTAP is doing, specifically on my own interactions with the police, my phone, and my neighborhood through this Ring device. Yeah, so you mentioned you have that, and I know what it is. I've heard about it. I understand that the police are using it to collect data, and that's, you know, problematic in itself. But from a user perspective, what does that look like? So the reason why I have one is that my family gave me one living in the South Side. Hearing gunshots is not unfamiliar. Yeah, and you heard like six last night, right? Exactly. And hearing that, immediately my phone notifications go off. Ring is telling me that somebody in the neighborhood has reported that they heard six shots. So this doorbell comes with an app and through this app, you can actually watch, like right now I'm watching what's going on outside of my house. What happened last night when I heard the six shots, somebody went onto this app and we can actually record and like post things. It's another social media kind of communication piece. And the six shots were heard all over the city. Initially, before I realized what a communication tool it is to like talk about suspicious people or to talk about things that we've heard, I felt like it was a great way just to keep an eye on my packages. But Kat, then I go to the part where it says your neighbors, right? You can look at it from your camera, from your history of your personal camera, and then you can go to your neighbors. So it could be anything I'm looking right now from graffiti to fireworks that they've heard, just random suspicious people that they have caught on their cameras and they'll post that. I will say for a lot of folks, they are white folks that look suspicious. But I was also at a community meeting that I mentioned in the interview where police officers are giving these out with raffle tickets. And it was really interesting to me that such a push from the police are going to the community, which is now Now I have questions. Now I'm suspicious of how this is going to frame my community. What is this going to look like for certain areas that people are walking more because transportation isn't there or cars or automobiles aren't owned? And again, these cameras can be triggered just by someone walking past your house. So anytime someone's walking past, I can now have a video recording of them. I could say anything about that person and say they were suspicious walking around, even if they didn't come up to my door, share that with the community and be like, this person just walking around strangely in my neighborhood. Boom. Not to mention the context is very limited because I imagine it's not this wide scope 
of a camera, right? It's probably right. this very focused lens. So you're literally not seeing the whole picture. <laughs> literally. And and some cameras, you can do the setting of, is it 15 feet? Is it 30 feet? So that's not even a consistency as well. But I will tell you, like, scrolling on this feed, it does nothing but give me anxiety. Just looking through what people are reporting, it's meant, well, it, it appears that it's designed to create this fear around certain spaces. To me, having this so accessible to our police department before we have accessible data from our police department seems problematic. So much work to do. That's why we're looking forward to 2020. 2020 elections, y'all. I'm just saying this is where we ask city council folks what they think about policing. We ask them to put it in part of their platform of how they're holding police accountable, how they're going to hold the administration accountable, because the administration is a person that oversees that department. We see how much power the administration has of just saying yes or no. And then the police officer, the police department moves yes or no. So the mayor is coming up in 2020, these council seats, the Commonwealth attorney that's been unopposed for like 12 something years. So if we look at what happened to Marcus David Peters, for those folks who know that this was an injustice, there is an opportunity mm-hmm. to not right the wrong, but to respond to that injustice and to challenge the systems and structures of power that perpetuated that injustice. Right. Even if someone may believe the shooting was justified, right? I feel like so many more people can get on board that somebody did not have to die that day. So this is our opportunity to save another life, to show that we absolutely do need reform. The words of Mayor Stoney will play forever and echo in my head of if it shows we need reform, if if this system was designed to have black and brown bodies marginalized and locked up, of course we need reform. I mean, a naked man was, he was unarmed. He was unarmed. We knew he was unarmed because he was naked. And we knew he was suffering from a mental health crisis because the police that ended up shooting him said that immediately when he got out the car. That was one of the first things we hear in the video. And he was day. killed. And th- there is no if. There is no if. We have got to find a way for people to be able to survive those encounters with the police when they're suffering. And if we can't do it when they're suffering, then how can we trust that it's just going to be justice if we're walking around and we get, you know, stop and frisk? I mean, a field interview. So that's why we're going to keep this conversation going. We're going to keep Marcus David Peters' name alive to show that this is a life or death issue and continue to hold our elected officials accountable, our police department accountable, as well as our neighbors accountable. We'll catch you next week here in Race Capital. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the M, the N.